welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 11, The Nautilus. Captain Nemo stood up and I rose to follow him. A double door at the back of the room opened and I entered another compartment of the same size as the one I had just left. It was a library. Tall pieces of furniture made of dark red rosewood streaked with black inlaid with brass contained on their deep shelves a great number of books all bound in the same way. The bookcases extended all around the room and where the lowest shelves ended the walls were lined with spacious divans upholstered in brown leather and most comfortably shaped. Light, movable book rests, which could be brought closer or pushed away at will, provided a surface on which to place a book while reading. In the center, there was a large table covered with pamphlets, among which also lay some old newspapers. The whole harmonious apartment was lit by electric light from four frosted glass globes, half sunk in the ceiling. I could not help admiring such an ingeniously arranged room, and indeed could scarcely believe my eyes. Captain Nemo. I said to my host, who had just stretched himself out on one of the divans. This is a library that would do honor to more than one palace on the continent, and I am really amazed that I think it is always with you, no matter to what depths of the sea you may go. Where could one find more solitude, more tranquility, Professor? replied Captain Nemo. Could you find such a completely restful atmosphere in your study at the museum? No, sir, and I must admit it is a very poor place compared to yours. You must have six or seven thousand volumes here. Twelve thousand, Monsieur Aronnax. These are the only ties that still bind me to the earth. But the world came to an end for me on the day when my Nautilus dived beneath the waters for the first time. On that day, I bought my last book, my last pamphlets, and my last newspapers. And since that time, I should like to think that humanity has neither thought any more thoughts nor written any more books. However, these books, Professor, are at your disposal, and you can make free use of them. I thanked Captain Nemo, and I approached the shelves of the library. There were books on science, on ethics, and on literature, in large numbers, in every language, but I saw not a single work on political economy. Such books seemed to be strictly prescribed on board. A curious detail was that these books were not clearly classified according to the languages in which they were written, and this confusion seemed to indicate that the captain of the Nautilus must have no trouble reading any volume he might happen to lay his hands on. Among these works, I noticed masterpieces of both ancient and modern writers, that is to say, everything that humanity has produced, that is most worthwhile in history, poetry, the novel, the science, from Homer up to Victor Hugo, from Xenophon to Michelet, from Rabelais to Georges Sand. But scientific books, particularly, were outstanding in this library. Books on mechanics, ballistics, hydrography, meteorology, geography, geology, etc., held a place no less important than the works of natural history, and I realized that these subjects were the captain's main fields of study. I saw all of Humboldt, Arago, the works of Foucault, Henry St. Clair, Deville, Chassé, Milne Edwards, Quatrefage, Tyndale, Faraday, Barthelot, and Abbe Sachet, Peterman, Commander Moray, Agassiz, etc. Publications of the Academy of Sciences, bulletins of various geographical societies, and in a prominent place the two volumes that were perhaps been the reason for my relatively charitable reception by Captain Nemo. Among the works of Joseph Bertrand, 
His book entitled The Founders of Astronomy even gave me an exact date since I knew that it had appeared in the course of 1865. I was able to conclude that the Nautilus had not been launched before that, therefore Captain Nemo had begun his submarine existence no more than three years before. Moreover, I hoped that more recent works could enable me to pinpoint the time exactly, but I would have plenty of time to make my inquiries, and I did not want to put off our tour of inspection of the marvels of the Nautilus. Sir, I said to the captain, I thank you for putting this library at my disposal. There are some treasures of science here, and I shall be happy to peruse them. This room is not only a library, said Captain Nemo, it is also a smoking room. A smoking room, I cried. Do you mean to say one may smoke on board? Surely. Well, sir, I am forced to believe you have kept up relations with Havana. None at all, replied the captain. Please accept a cigar, Monsieur Aronnax, although it does not come from Havana. You will certainly be pleased with it if you are a connoisseur. I took the cigar offered me whose shape reminded me of a Havana cigar, but which seemed to be made of golden leaves. I lit it from a little brazier on an elegant bronze stand, and inhaled the first mouthfuls with all the delight of the enthusiastic smoker, who has not had a puff for two days. "'It's excellent,' I said. "'But it's not tobacco.' "'No,' replied the captain. "'This tobacco comes from neither Havana nor the East. It is a sort of seaweed, rich in nicotine, which the sea supplies us rather sparingly.' Do you think you will miss your Havana cigars? Captain, from this day on I shall despise them. Do smoke these at your pleasure without worrying about their origin. No government department guarantees their quality, but I don't think they are any worse for that. On the contrary, at that moment Captain Nemo opened a door opposite that through which I had come into the library, and I entered an enormous, splendidly lit saloon. In space it was a vast, canted quadrilateral, thirty feet long, eighteen wide, and fifteen high. A luminous ceiling decorated the light of arabesques, shed a bright, soft light on all the marvels displayed in this museum, for this was indeed a museum in which an intelligent and prodigal hand had brought together many treasures of na nature and art, with that artistic improvisation found only in a painter's studio. The walls were draped with materials of a uh, austere pattern, and on them hung about thirty pictures by well-known masters, all framed in the same way. With glittering trophies in between, I saw canvases of the greatest value, most of which I had admired in private collections in Europe and at exhibitions. The various schools of the ancient masters were represented. Madonna by Raphael, a virgin by Leonardo da Vinci, a nymph by Correggio, a woman by Titian, an adoration by Veronese, an assumption by Murillo, a portrait by Holbein, a monk by Velasquez, a martyr by Ribera, a country fair by Rubens, two Flemish landscapes by Teniers, three little genre paintings by Gerard Dow, Mestu, and Paul Potter, two canvases by Guiricou and Proudhon, and a few land seascapes by Bacusin and Vernet. The works of modern painting included pictures signed by Delacroix, Ingres, De Camp, Troan, Monsignor, and etc., and some admirable small reproductions of statues in marble of bronze copied from the most beautiful models of antiquity stood on pedestals in the corners of this magnificent museum. That state of stupefaction that the captain of the Nautilus had predicted was already beginning to possess me. I hope, Professor, my strange host said, you will excuse the casual way in which I am receiving you and the untidiness of this room. Sir, I replied, without seeking to know who you are, may I be permitted to guess that you are an artist? No more than an amateur. 
I'm afraid, monsieur, at one time I used to enjoy collecting these beautiful works created by the hand of man. I am an avid collector. I used to fare about tirelessly in search of new pieces, and I have been able to bring together a few things of great value. They are my last souvenirs of a world that is dead for me. In my eyes, your modern artists are already ancient. They are two or three thousand years old. I make no distinction between them. The great masters are ageless. What about these composers? I asked, pointing to scores by Weber, Rossini, Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, Meyerbeer, Harold, Wagner, Aubert, Gounod, Massey, and a number of others, scattered about on top of a large organ which filled one of the panels of the saloon. These musicians, Captain Nemo replied, are contemporaries of Orpheus, for chronological differences are effaced in the memory of the dead, and I am dead, Professor, as dead as those friends of yours who lie six feet below the ground. Captain Nemo was silent and appeared to be lost in deep reverie. I felt considerable emotion as I studied him, silently analyzing the peculiarities of his physiognomy. Leaning on the corner of a valuable mosaic table, he was no longer aware of my presence and seemed to have forgotten me. I therefore respected his mood of meditation and continued to examine the wealth of curiosities that filled this room. Next to the work of arts, a prominent place was occupied by natural rarities. These consisted mainly of plants, shells, and other products of the ocean, which must have been the personal finds of Captain Nemo in the middle of the saloon. A jet of water, electricity illuminated, fell into a large bowl made from the shell of a giant clam. This shell, which had come from the largest of acephalous mollusks, had a delicately scalloped rim about twenty feet in circumference. It was neither larger than those beautiful clam shells given to Francois I by Republic of Venice and made into two gigantic holy water basins in, at the church of St. Sulpice in Paris. Around this fountain, in elegant glass cases framed in, in copper, I found the most precious sea specimens that a naturalist was ever permitted to feast his eyes on, all classified and labeled, imagined how delighted I was. The cases contained the zoophytes, included very curious specimens of the two groups of polyps and echiderms. In the first group were tubophores, gorgonods, arranged like a fan, soft sponges of Syria, acidae of the mollusks, panatulas, and excellent virgularia from the Norwegian seas, variegated umbellas, alcyonerae, a whole series of madrepores, which my, my teacher, Milne Edwards, was so expertly classified into sections, among which I saw some wonderful flabella, oculinae from the island of Bourbon, the Neptune's chariot of the Antilles, superb varieties of coral, in short, every species of those curious polyps of which entire islands are formed, islands that may some day become continents. Among the echinoderms, remarkable for their spiny skins, there were starfish or sea stars, pentacrines, sea urchins, sea cucumbers, asterophons, feather stars, a complete collection of this division. Now a nervous conchologist would have fainted before other more numerous cases in which the mollusks were classified. In them I saw a collection of inestimable value, which, for lack of time, I cannot describe here in its entirety. Of these specimens, however, I must mention in passing the elegant royal hammerfish of the Indian Ocean, whose even white spots stood out brightly on a red and brown background, an imperial spondyle, bright-colored, bristled with spines, a rare specimen in European museums, whose value I estimated at not less than 20,000 francs, a common hammer shell from the Sea of New Holland, which can be obtained only with difficulty, exotic cockles from Senegal, with fragile white bivalve shelves, which a breath could shatter from a soap bubble, several varieties of the Aspergillus from Java, resembling calcareous tubes, 
edged with leafy pleats, highly prized by collectors, a whole series of tronchi, some greenish-yellow caught in the American seas, others a reddish-brown found in Australian waters, the former from the Gulf of Mexico, remarkable for the imbricated shell. The latter found in the southern waters, distinctly star-shaped, and the rarest of all, the magnificent spur shell of New Zealand. Then there was the remarkable sulfurized tellins, precious varieties of Venice, and Scytherian shells, the trellised sundial from the Tranquibar coasts, the marble turban conch with its pearl gleam, the green parrot shell from the China Sea, the most totally unknown conical shell of the genus Conodelli, many varieties of the polished cowries that serve as money in India and Africa, the sea glory, the most precious in East Indian shell, and finally, Litoridinae, Delphiniums, Turritellidae, Jacthinidae, Ovulidae, Miter shells, helmet shells, purpurae, whelks, harp shells, morixes, tight tritons or trumpet shells, cerithidae, spindles, strombidae, wing shells, limpets, hyalines, cleodores, and many shells so delicate and so fragile that science has baptized them with the most charming of names. Apart in special cases, there were displays of chaplets of pearls of the greatest beauty, which, under the electric light, sparkled like tiny jets of flame, pearls of pale pink torn from the pinnate leaves of the Red Sea, green-colored pearls of the haliotide iris, yellow, blue, black pearls, curious products of various mollusks of every sea, and certain species of mussels found in northern streams, finally several specimens of inestimable value, distilled by the rarest pearl oysters. Some of these pearls were larger than the egg of a pigeon, and were more valuable than the pearls sold to the Shah of Persia for three million francs by the traveler Tavernier. They even excelled the other pearl, now in the possession of Ayman of Muscat, which I had always thought unrivaled in the world. It was impossible, of course, to estimate the value of this collection. Captain Nemo must have spent millions in gathering these specimens, and I was wondering what the source of his immense wealth might be when I was interrupted by the captain. I see you are examining my shells, Monsieur le Professeur. I am sure they must be of great interest to the naturalist. They have a special charm for me. However, because I collected them all with my own hands, not a single sea in this world has escaped my search. I can understand, Captain, what a joy it must be to live in the midst of such riches. You are among those who collect their own treasures. If I were to express my total admiration for these treasures, however, I would have none left for the admirable craft that bears them. Please understand me. I have no wish to pry into secrets which are purely your own, but I must confess that the Nautilus, with its instruments and its wonderful energy and power, arouses my greatest curiosity. I see some instruments on these walls that are unfamiliar to me. May I presume? Monsieur Aranax, replied the captain, as I have already told you, you have complete freedom aboard my ship. You are free to inspect in its minutest details, if you wish. I shall be delighted to act as your guide. I don't know how to thank you, sir and I have no wish to take advantage of your kindness. I should like it, however, if you would explain to me the use of these instruments. There is a similar set in my room, and that is where I shall have the pleasure of explaining them to you. But first, let me show you to your quarters. You should know what your accommodations are aboard the Nautilus. I followed Captain Nemo, who, leading the way through one of the doors provided in each section of the saloon, brought me into one of the passages of the ship. He led me forward, where I found not a cabin, but an elegant room, with a bed, a dressing-table, and various other pieces of furniture. I could not but think my host. "'Your room adjoins mine,' he said to me, opening a door, "'and mine is next to the saloon we have just left.' Enter the captain's room, which had a severe, almost monastic air. A small iron bed bedstead, a work-table, some bedroom furniture, 
and very subdued lighting. There was no comfort, only the barest necessities. Captain Nemo pointed to a chair. Do sit down, he said. And when I was seated, he began to tell me the story of the Nautilus. Questions to consider after reading. The Nautilus holds 12,000 volumes of works, countless pieces of art, and natural varieties. Captain Nemo seems surrounded by beauty, even though he has renounced his allegiance to mankind. Is there something of human nature that desires beauty? Why wouldn't Nemo have works on political economy? The seaweed cigars are a fictional creation by Verne. Could we replace everyday items with things from the ocean? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.